Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports. In print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. From the Milton Metz studio in the radio TV building at Indiana University, welcome to Noon Edition. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg from WFIU, WTIU News, and today we're talking about the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. The wall was put up in 1961 to prevent further migrations of East Germans to West Germany. It came down in 1989 as democracy spread through Eastern Europe. We'll be talking with our guests about the fall of the wall and its history, and we have three guests in the studio. Mike Conway is an associate professor at Indiana University's Media School, and uh, Elaine Monahan is a professor of practice at IU's Media School. She was there as a student during the fall of the Berlin Wall. And Laszlo Borhe is associate professor in Central Eurasian Studies at IU. If you have questions or comments, you can follow us. Uh, on Twitter at Noon Edition, you can also send us questions at news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can call us at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. I should also say Mike Conway has just uh, completed a book called uh, The Tunnel and the Struggle Over Television News in Cold War America. It's about uh, what was going on uh, over there during that time period. And uh, Elaine Monahan went on to work as a foreign correspondent. And uh, also Laszlo Borges has written a book called Dealing with Dictators, the United States, Hungary, and East Central Europe, 1942 to 1989. So we have a lot of different perspectives. We're going to kind of start by looking at the history. And I've asked... uh, Professor Borhe, uh, to start us off of sort of the history of what was going on in that region during that time. So the, um, um, the Berlin Wall became the symbol of the Cold War, and the dismantlement, the collapse of the Berlin Wall became the symbol of the end of the Cold War. The end of the Cold War, which um, the Cold War, which actually on many occasions threatened with a nuclear showdown between the Eastern Bloc led by the Soviet Union and the Western Bloc, as we called it, led by the United States. Uh, But how did this Berlin problem emerge? Uh, You mentioned that uh, after 1945, the unintended consequence of the development of the confrontation between the Soviet Union and America led to the division of Germany. It was unintended, but that's the way it turned out. But on the other hand, there was an uncomfortable uh, fact for the Soviets that Berlin ended up in the uh, Soviet zone of influence in the so-called GDR, East Germany, But Berlin itself was divided. It was divided to a Soviet sphere of influence, a Soviet zone of occupation, and a Western one, American, British, and French. And just like Germany consolidated into states, East and West, the zones of occupation, I mean, so they did in Berlin. So there was an American Western uh, presence in the middle of the GDR, and that should not be allowed because Berlin, West Berlin, functioned as a magnet to Germans, that life in the West is actually better than life in the East. It was a kind of war effort from the part of the West to quickly rebuild West Berlin so that the East Germans can see how good it is. In addition to that, uh, the Soviets had an obligation to run logistics, to allow the Western powers to supply West Berlin, but this was a strategic weakness because, of course, the Soviet, Soviets could blockade that. Uh, and the next uncomfortable thing for the Soviets was that East Germans were not allowed to go to West Germany, but East Berliners were allowed to go to West Berlin to work. And as you mentioned, um, in 1961, there was a veritable exodus of people from East Berlin to West Berlin, 
So there was a danger that the water would empty from the top, that it would become, the DGDR would become at least theoretically untenable because everybody would leave. Now, in 1948, the Soviets under Stalin tried to blockade Berlin, um, and then there was this famous American airlift to West Berlin we all know about, but that was a very dangerous situation. Uh, so the Soviets and the East German leadership, who's a, who was a hardline Stalinist called Ulbricht, uh, decided that we cannot have a war, but we have to do something about this. So eventually, the construction of the war was an East German, German idea, because East Germany was a weak country, but it was able to manipulate the hegemonic power, the Soviet Union, to save them by building the wall. Uh, so uh, basically, it actually stabilized. It, there was a danger of a little bit of a danger of a war, but basically, it stabilized the situation in Central Europe. And then eventually, in the 1970s, the Soviets signed an agreement that finally regulated the status of Berlin as divided permanently, fortunately not permanently, to an east and a western part. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the German question was forgotten, because the German question was always a very s- sensitive issue in Cold War politics and even before that, so it was long forgotten. But then what happens? Even though the Germans, East Germany was a bulwark of the strength of the communist systems in Eastern Europe, but the communist regimes elsewhere in Eastern Europe began to crumble, most notably in Poland and then in Hungary. And in fact, in 1989, due to the, the Hungary's uh, financial problems, they, they dismantled the so-called border zone with Austria. And this was a, a system of bad wires and electronic warning defenses that stopped people from Hungary going into Austria, the western part of the world. Now, how was this related to the German question? Uh, Theoretically, East Germans could not go to West Germany, even through Berlin anymore, because the war was there, and many, unfortunately, were killed trying to go into West Berlin. Mm -hmm. Uh, But another solution was to go to a fraternal country, a communist country like Hungary, Czechoslovakia, or Poland, that had borders with the Western world, with Germany or Austria. But how did they stop doing that? Each country had an obligation to return East Germans trying to go into the Western part of the world. So these are bilateral agreements. But now, the weakened communist regime is dismantling the border wall, and the image in East Germany is, ah, the border is open in Hungary, we can go to Austria. Now, to cut a very long story short, uh, due to an agreement between Hungary and West Germany, uh, Prime Minister Nemeth and Chancellor Kohl, they provisionally opened the border of Hungary to Austria on September 11, 1989. And then hundreds and hundreds of Germans began to cross into Austria. And seeing that, Czechoslovakia did the same. They also opened the borders. But they made a big mistake. The Czechs insisted that Germans who are going to, from Czechoslovakia to West Germany should proceed through East Germany. I don't know why they even did that, but it was apparent to everybody to see that now the happy Germans can go into West Germany, and it was the end of the GDR. And just finally, um, there was an American television company, maybe it was ABC, they came to Budapest on September, uh, a few days after September 11, and I was asked to interpret for them. And they went to uh, one of the uh, communist politicians responsible for opening the door, Imre Pozsgai, and they asked him, uh, Mr. Pozsgai, what is the consequence of the opening of the border? And he said, it's the end of the GDR. Mm-hmm. So that emboldened people in East Germany, particularly in Leipzig, to demonstrate against the regime, which was then by then in a very, very difficult situation because Gorbachev was forcing them to implement reforms, which they didn't want to do. Their people were fleeing into the West, uh, their fraternal countries renounced bilateral agreements with them, so they had to do something. And then there was this erroneous announcement on German, East German television, that, which was a mistake, basically, a mistaken representation of the decision of the East German political committee, which then emboldened people to go to the war, and the rest is history, as they say. So, Elaine, you were there at the time. What was life like in, in Berlin at the time that this was happening? 
So yeah, I was a student there. I was majoring in Russian and German at the University of Glasgow, so I was fortunate enough to be able to go to West Berlin, as it was then known, um, right before all of what Laszlo just described, or as it was happening. Because when I left Glasgow, my Russian professor, Professor Henry, who had a big grey beard like any self-respecting Russian professor should have. (laughs) And I remember him kind of stroking his beard and saying to me, Elaine, just watch this wall come tumbling Mm. down. And of course, I was a clueless sophomore and I had really no idea why he was telling me this, really. Um, Because, of course, we didn't live in a 24-hour news cycle. So that's... At least I didn't then. I guess there were journalists who were living that way, but I was still a student. So... In fact, when I lived in West Berlin in a neighbourhood called Neukölln, which was very close to the wall, so close that I was sick all the time because of the Trabant fumes coming across the wall, <laughs> um, even though we were so close and there were all these protests going on in the West and in the East and my roommates, who were all German, and I were aware that things were changing. We were going to these protests and kind of we'd sneak across. There was a particular corner of the wall that you could sneak across before it really opened And we would go there on our bicycles pretty often and kind of hang out and just see what was going to happen. And then when the night when the, what was his name, Shabowski, the the spokesman, announced that sort of by accident that the travel restrictions were being lifted for East Germans, um, we all had heard the news and we were talking about it in our Wege, which is a Wohngemeinschaft, like a shared apartment. And we were all kind of scratching our heads and saying... This is obviously really important. Travel restrictions have been lifted. We didn't really comprehend it. And then we all woke up in the morning going, oh, my gosh. And I had to go to work. I was working in a high school teaching English. And, of course, I got to school and all the students were like, well, we're not staying in class. So I went with my students to the wall and we met some men who were um, travelling from, I think it was Dresden, They'd never been to East Berlin before, far less West Berlin. They were there for work. And so they were just two people from among this huge mass of jubilant East Germans and West Germans, everybody crying and handing flowers to strangers and hugging and kissing and this incredible feeling of, you know, optimism that I've, I think it's fair to say none of us has maybe seen quite since. Mm -hmm. Um, And we took these two men and we asked them, so where do you want to go? So we got on a train somehow, because <laughs> it was hard to get on a train. They wanted to go to Kaufhaus des Westens, which was the kind of, you know, symbolic Western supermarket in West Berlin. And we just went there and we were all crying. So even they were crying. Everybody was crying <laughs> just to walk through the supermarket. And and then they wanted to go back. And that was it. We took them back. They went back to East Germany. And, you know, had I been a reporter then, I would have found a way to stay in touch with them but instead I just sort of waved goodbye and you know it was a very emotional day for all of us. Yeah before I go to Mike I want to ask you so I think those of us who sort of grew up during this time have this sort of vision of the Berlin Wall being Mm -hmm. a very ominous frightening place so sort of put us in that space when you were a student there I mean when you walk near the wall I mean could how big was the wall? What could you see? Could you see people with guns that were you know, going to shoot down people that tried to escape? I mean, what was it like? So before the wall opened, it was so much part of our lives that we, I think a lot of people really didn't pay attention to it. I mean, as a newcomer, it had a certain curiosity factor for me. And so I would go and look at it, you know, with my fellow um, Western European students every now and then on the, on the West German side. And, of course, it felt ominous, and I understood somehow that this was a dangerous place. But it wasn't really dangerous for us. It was, of course, very dangerous for people on the other side if they dared to try to cross it, as, you know, there was this terrible story that many of us, our listeners, I'm sure, have heard of Peter Fechter, who was a young teenager who decided one day just to cross and was shot and left to bleed to death in full view of hundreds of West Germans and it was an awful incident that kind of was seared into the memory of anyone who knew anything about, you know, Berlin at the time. So we were aware it was dangerous in the, in the abstract. But when the wall opened, when the borders started to open, 
um, we would go there kind of with this question mark in our minds. Is this dangerous? Mm-hmm. And of course, this was the year of Tiananmen Square. So everyone was aware of the, the dangers inherent in democracy movements and so on. But most, more, more than anything, it was just a place of immense optimism at that time. And then on the first day when people started to stand on top of the wall, which was something I experienced, it was like a... It's, it's sort of the closest com- parallel I can think of really is like being in the pit at the front of a giant rock concert where you lose control of your physical presence. So, you know, people were literally just dragging each other up on top of the wall. So this is a particular part of the wall that was flat. There were other parts that had a curved top, so you couldn't stand on them, but this part was flat. So we were standing on top of this wall and everybody was crazy and wondering, oh my God, if I fall off, what happens? But nobody did. And so we're looking over the wall into the faces of these, you know, border guards who are looking up at us in complete sort of shock. Um, and we're just going, well, I don't think they're going to shoot us today. <laughs> so, yes. All right. Okay. Well, our phone numbers again are 855-0811 in Bloomington or one 285 outside of the Bloomington area. You can send us questions at news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So, Mike Conway, what got you interested in this topic? And, you know, what, what was the media's role over there? Well, it, it – um it, it, the interesting thing, I, I'm a television historian and a television news historian, and television in the United States basically comes of age with the Cold War. So 1948, 1950, we have about one out of every 10 households has a TV. By 1960, it's nine out of 10. So TV news, is, uh, especially on the network level, it's the Cold War is, is much of what they're covering. So I got interested in this because of um, – um, one of the most important people in early television news history is a guy named Reuven Frank, who was the producer. He created the Huntley Brinkley Report, which we now know as the NBC Nightly News. And um, he got into TV in 1950, and by 62, the Huntley Brinkley Report was the most popular journalism platform we had in the United States. So he was he was kind of at the top of his game, and um, he and, and so the wall becomes. It's interesting. The wall becomes this this um, v- at the time when TV is becoming big. The wall is this very visual thing. It was a little harder to to visualize the Cold War earlier, other than shots of you know when they do test uh, atomic bomb testing. But now, when you have this wall, this there are stories that you can tell every day along this wall. Um, so that got me interested because it, um, they produced NBC produced a documentary about a tunnel escape project under the wall in 1962. And just the very, very strong reaction to NBC doing this project by so many different players got me interested. Like, why was there such, you know, it, the, the, the documentary is called The Tunnel. And it, at the time, it was the largest escape no, to, number of people to escape under the wall with a tunnel, 29 people at least. Um, and, and why the U.S. government tried to shut down the documentary, no. West German, West Berlin, um, print journalists, print journalists were not happy about this. Pro- all these very interesting reactions. So it, I kind of wanted to dig into the interesting story about this tunnel because there's a lot of intrigue in Tunnel 29. But then also, what was happening that would cause all these interesting reactions? And that's what got me interested into the project. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious about, you know, why were these reactions so strong? It, 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 there's a lot going on as because this is also the period, 62, 63, um, and when you think of t- American television history, 63, everyone talks about because of the, the death of uh, the assassination of John F. Kennedy and how everyone turned to television. Well, really, it would already – television was kind of taking over from newspapers as the most popular source of news in the United States. So that was part of it. And, and there was also a very um, – Part of the book, uh, there are declassified documents now from the State Department. You can see what's going on behind the scenes. And journalists were pretty working pretty closely with the government. Um, you know, it was kind of this, the journalists, a lot of the journalists and the government people felt they had to protect America from the, you know, so they, they had some agreements about covering things, not covering things. Many people probably know the Bay of Pigs, that the New York Times had information that they did not. Um, 
And so now this NBC, it basically was a great journalistic coup. It was a great get that NBC got. And there was a lot of journalism um, jealousy, jealousy involved. So, But when you see the behind-the-scenes document, and it involves – it's a crazy story that involves Daniel Shore because he was at CBS. And the two networks, independently of each other, each found a tunnel project. Um, NBC's was so – meticulous. The project, the, the, these were students, West Berlin students that were trying to bring people across their, when the wall closes down, uh, when they put the wall up, all of a sudden these students can't get to school anymore. So they were uh, the university students. So their project was so meticulous, it took four or five months to dig. It started in May of 62, and they ran out of money quickly, and they got to NBC, and NBC uh, they asked for money for supplies. NBC made a secret deal to pay them money for supplies, and then they would get exclusive access while they filmed this thing. So all the summer of 62, NBC is secretly filming this tunnel. Then when they get close to the year anniversary, the other fascinating thing is the people, whether you were journalists or in the government, if you're in Berlin, you're not happy about this wall. Kennedy, the President Kennedy, they're trying to get this to go away because it, the wall was actually a compromise because neither the Soviet Union or the United States wanted to go to war over Berlin. So for Kennedy, this was something he could deal with. But the, but the people in Berlin, be it the journalists or not, uh, or, or government, they still were so upset about it. Daniel Shore really wanted to do a documentary on the day, the anniversary day, to kind of bring back attention to why is this wall here and why isn't the West doing more? His tunnel was not as meticulous as, <laughs> as um, NBC's, and um, it was so well known um, uh, in intelligence circles that Secretary of State Dean Rusk finds out that Shore's dealing with this tunnel, and he puts the pressure on in New York to get him out of this tunnel because they think that the East Germans know about it. I, I don't think Rusk really knew, but he's... And so the pressure was put on first in Berlin, and Shore said, no, I'm staying in the tunnel. And then uh, Rusk made his boss come to his office and call him from there and say, get out, get out of Berlin. You can't be anywhere near this. And they were right. It was that tunnel was compromised. And when they came up in East Berlin, uh, the Stasi were waiting for them. Um, and then the journalists knew about it, too. So they were on the west side of the wall waiting to see what was going to happen on the east side. So they get this. The, and the NBC reporter, who's still working on the other tunnel, he's there watching. So they have a meet. They meet with the NBC brass saying, hey, you, you shouldn't have been involved in that. And it hit them. It's like, oh, my gosh, they don't know about our tunnel. They only know about. So NBC didn't say anything. So oh, wow. then when it. But, and then it was uh, the Berlin mission. Whether they knew or not, the, the Tunnel 29 got into the New York Times before the State Department knew it existed. At least that's how they play. That's how the cables show. Um, maybe other parts, the CIA probably knew about it, but the State Department did not. And then no one knew that NBC was involved. It's a big story. The most people, nobody knows NBC is involved until about another couple weeks. And then it comes out, uh, Time Magazine and the New York Times, and they position it as this is horrible because NBC paid money to be part of the project. And that's where it gets into this. No one's seen a frame of film yet. Reuven Frank has brought all the film back. They're working on the documentary, and it blows up as an international incident where everyone's saying, stop this project. We, this should not run because, because you shouldn't have done it in the first place. Wow. Yeah, some ethical consideration. Mm -hmm. say, yes. <laughs> so I want to I read this um, Facebook comment we have, and then we're going to take a short break. And afterward, I want you guys to comment on it. But it's from Lisa, who says, I was living in Berlin then. My son was not quite one, so I did not venture out into the masses. But we were all pretty much still in shock at how fast the Eastern Bloc was crumbling. And I want to talk to you all about the speed at which this all happened after we returned from a break. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. We'll be right back. From the Milton Met Studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. 
WFIU News covers south-central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIUNews. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live, and you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from WFIU and WTIU, and we're talking about the fall of the Berlin Wall today. It was 40 years ago, August or uh, November 9th, so – yeah, not August, November 9th. So tomorrow will be the 40th anniversary. You can uh, follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can call us at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. Um, we were talking about the speed in which this happened, but before we get to that, uh, I want to go back to Laszlo Borhi, who wants to, to explain a little bit more about the, the whole physical structure of the wall. So the interesting part about this war was it was not meant to keep people out, but keep people in. So Eastern Europe, the communist zone, was a large prison. But how can you make a wall work uh, to keep people in? So the way they did it in Berlin and all over Eastern Europe is that they build a barrier, in Berlin's case, the wall, on the Stacks-Oro border with the West, but they had to construct another one in German, in East Berlin territory. So if somebody scaled the wall and wanted to go to the other side, he, wasn't, or, he or she was not in West Berlin yet, but on no man's land. And that's where the East German guards, who had standing order to shoot, actually shot them. So while trying to cross the no man's land to the second uh, barrier. In fact, it was impossible. But they were not allowed. You were not allowed to take even a photo of the wall. So I was once stopped by an East German police patrol, and my film was taken away for trying to film it from. Oh, East oh really? Yeah, I know. If any of you, anybody out there who's been to the museum in Washington D.C., there is a little piece of the wall there with one of the guard towers in it. So, what about this uh, question that you know that Lisa, the, the observation she made about? People were in shock about how fast the Eastern Bloc crumbled. Who wants to react to that? So uh, the the thing was that it it looked very strong, and the Soviet Union looked strong. And I have to say that uh, even in early 89, not even the best international relations minds in the world would predict that it was going to collapse so rapidly. But the Achilles heel of communist system was the economy. And the Soviet economy was struggling. It was no longer able to provide assistance to its satellites in Eastern Europe. And the economies in turn of particularly Poland, Romania, and Hungary were in incredibly bad shape. And the deal that the governments made in Hungary with the people that will sustain your standard of living if you accept the political system, and such a deal was also made in Poland— it began to crumble and collapse. So people became first disgruntled with the fact that their standard of living was plummeting. And in turn, the communist regime was afraid that there would be new revolutions if that happened. So for them, the way to move forward was to find a way out of this conundrum, how to stay in power, but how to uh, allow others to shoulder the, post- the, the, uh, the burden of the collapsing economy. So they began to tolerate opposition political groups and then parties, and then all of a sudden, as an unintended consequence, these opposition groups and then parties became all too powerful, and I felt it because I was behind the Iron Curtain, then people began to lose their fear of the regime. Mm -hmm. So they were no longer afraid in Poland, in Slovakia, in Hungary, in Germany to go out, and that was crucial to loss of fear, that they are no longer that powerful. And the image that Gorbachev depicted was that this is no longer a tyrant, this is a good guy. He will, have, he will let this happen. And also, when President Bush came to Eastern Europe, he provided immense courage that America is behind all this, that we can, we can rely on the Americans if something goes wrong. Mm-hmm. So you were in Hungary at the time, correct? Yes. Right. Okay. So, Elaine Monaghan, so you uh, 
were an international correspondent. And I mean, are there are there other big international stories you could compare this to? I mean, this is, was a really historic time. I think I said it was the 40th anniversary. It's actually the 30th, so I misspoke before. Um, but it was it was a very historic time, and this the symbol, you know, as Mike said, the symbol for television was was there that just sort of represented mm. the Cold War. Um, you know, how do how do you place this in history? So, I mean, <clears throat> on the basis of my own experiences, which is probably the most reliable one <laughs> to refer to, um, I mean, the only. I, mean, I often say to my students that the reason, one of the big reasons I became a journalist was because of experiencing the fall of the wall. And I think it was a reaction to my own inability to fully grasp what was happening around me that motivated that to a certain extent. I really wanted to be able to say, hey, this is what this actually means, because it was so emotional and so overwhelming. And yet the facts were not immediately at my fingertips. And so I was very driven to be put myself into positions in the future where where I would be able to understand what was happening. And the only other parallel, at least in my experience, in my lifetime, um, as a journalist, really was when we signed the... when the the peace deal was signed in Northern Ireland, which, you know, having grown up in Scotland, obviously very aware of the conflict there, the sort of, you know, the enormous amount of um, kind of um, choreography that had to take place for that to happen... And, and the, the apparent sort of unlikelihood that that conflict would ever be resolved um, had had a similar impact on the people affected by it, where it was just incredible joy that this thing that you thought was never going to go away suddenly did. Um, I'm sure there are plenty of other examples mm-hmm. that people can think of. That, mm-hmm. yeah. are there, <clears throat> so I wanted to ask about... Um, Mike, from your perspective, again, how was the story how, – how did the continuous coverage occur? What – you know, one thing I've learned over time, you know, when the fall of the Soviet Union, for instance, which was just a few years after that, um, you know, people weren't all – I mean, there might have been great joy in some circles, but for other people, it was not a really good thing. I mean, what was, was this covered at the time? Like just a very positive. This is a great story. You mean uh, with the fall of the with wall? With the fall or? of the wall, and then the the post, the stories afterward. I think it's. Know? I think it's. Um, uh, especially in journalism, and especially in television, it, it, it's the visual. It's kind of the because it had been this visual, the visual representation of the Cold War. And then, you know, you have uh, President Reagan with, you know, take, tear down this wall. So I think it, it, it just fits so well into the narrative that the, go, the, the building of the wall is this major symbol that then the coming down, it's like it, it puts it, even though, as we've heard, there were so many other things going on in other countries, but it's that image that we remember because seeing the people on top of the wall and those things, it's like you could, it was, it was a good, it was a great narrative to kind of talk about the beginning and end with the way the wall came down. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I just, I mean, certainly the way this story was framed, it would have been extremely hard to tell it in any other way than as a, as, as a, an immensely powerfully positive story. Um, which is not to say that there weren't, as you pointed out, people who would have had a more negative response to it. But, I mean, if you think about it at the time, old, for older people who had experienced the wall going up, which was an, a, just an, a sort of enormous violation for everyone who experienced it, um, you know, anyone who could remember that was obviously going to feel immensely happy about the wall coming down. So it wasn't even like there was a kind of a nostalgic view yeah. of, oh, her, well, we're saying goodbye to the wall. I mean, but there were people who were obviously saying, aware that they were saying goodbye to a certain economic system that had given them, some people, a certain amount of stability that mm-hmm. they were not experiencing in the immediate aftermath of that. I mean, I, I taught English to people who lost their jobs right after the wall fell. That was what paid my salary for a year after I extended my stay there. And and the East German officials who I taught English, you know, many of them were deeply depressed because their entire life had fallen apart um, and they woke up unemployed and uncertain of their future. So, of course, there were people who had a negative experience. But I think Laszlo is probably the person to really talk about that. Yeah, I guess I I would like to hear your perspective (laughs) on it because for, you know, a great many people, it probably was a symbol, I would assume, was a symbol of 
um, you know, government control over their lives. But this idea of some stability, you know, in the aftermath of the wall coming down, in the aftermath of the borders being open, were there, you know, what were the positives and what were the potential negatives? I mean, one thing I can say that there was overwhelming optimism. We did not think about the hardship. I mean, the economists were saying, look, okay, the wall is down, the border barrier is gone, the communists are gone, but it's going to take three decades at least for us to, to reach where Austria is right now economically. And, you know, it's, who Bush said it's about the economy, stupid. It was about the economy. And you could go to Vienna, you could go to West Berlin and see how much better those people were, were better fed, better clothed, better educated, better health care. Everything was better despite the fairy tale of communism mm-hmm. being the perfect society. But, you know, when it, when it happened, finally, there was just a feeling of joy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a festive all over. Um, in, in, in Prague, after the, the crowd was severely beaten by the police, but they still went out again. I mean, the only dark, dark situation was Romania, where there was actually fighting. A thousand Romanians were killed in their struggle for liberty, and liberty did not come for them because a post-communist government took over in, in Bucharest. But elsewhere, it was just uh, overwhelming optimism. And then it was later when, when sobriety struck in and okay so we're there but what are we going to do how do we run the country mm-hmm. and then what you were mentioning about tremendous inflation people not being able to buy their medication anymore so that's when the difficulties when it already happened then when it's set in that oh this is going to be difficult mm-hmm. all right mm-hmm. our phone numbers are 812-855-0811 here in bloomington or toll free at 1-877-285-9348 uh, you can also send us questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. We're talking about the fall of the Berlin Wall 30 years ago. If you have uh, questions about it or if you have comments about where you were or what it meant to you, please uh, feel free to give us a call or, or send us an email. Um, so you mentioned three decades. It would be three decades. That's what it's been now, three decades since the fall of the wall. It seems to me, uh, and this is, you know, a 60,000-foot observation, that there still are some disparities between eastern and western Germany, between Hungary and perhaps Austria and some of the other more western countries. So what are those disparities and why do they still exist? Anybody have a... Laszlo? I mean, (laughs) the thing is, nobody really knows, but the thing is that the West Germans poured in an order of hundreds of billions of dollars into East Germany, and it's still the wages and everything is lagging behind. Now, Eastern Europe got no assistance whatsoever, so it was one big problem. There was no Marshall Plan. So particularly the Poles were expecting that even if there's not going to be such a big American largesse, but the West European countries would in turn assist the East, but that was not the case. So there was very, very little external assistance. And what didn't help was that the EU took a long time to expand. So when the first accession agreement trade, look, the, the, the trading book of the East collapsed, the Comecon. So they, the, the Soviets would, were no longer able, the Russians could not buy this, this stuff anymore. And it was unsellable in the West. But the few products that we could sell were protected by the EU. And the accession treaties, trade treaties that they signed, I actually kept out the few commodities that we could sell to the West because of EU protectionism. Uh, but the pre- big problem is that the huge gap, I mean, if you look at, for instance, North Korea and South Korea, these are lessons to be learned, that it's difficult to dismantle um, central command economy and build a market economy, but it's the mentality which is really difficult mm-hmm. to change. Mm-hmm. I mean, the people got used to the fact that we live in a large kindergarten and somebody will take care of us. And you see that in Hungary. I mean, the reason why the right is winning is because people just want to be taken care of. It was too difficult for them. And the younger guys are going, are migrating from Poland, from Slovakia, from Romania, from Hungary to work in the West. And the, the people who stay, and many of them are my age or older, they say that it's, we want a government like the communist government, not nasty and, you know, put us into prison, but we want to be taken care of. Mm-hmm. So the mentality is very difficult. 
very difficult to change. We did get a – I'll go to Mike here in a second, but we did get an email from somebody who said there was a story on NPR last night talking to some some folks who uh, were in East Germany who think that life w- was better before the wall came down in 1989 than it is now in East Germany. So and, It's funny that the, uh, what little I've traveled in the former East Germany would always kind of remind – what I'm reminded of oftentimes is kind of like the industrial Midwest. I mean areas that – that kind of have been left behind. But, of course, the, the after the reunification, all the money that was put in to try to help East Germany. But that's kind of what – when I see those cities, it kind of reminds me of areas that I've – you know, towns in the United States that were doing well and then, you know, life passes by, the steel mills close down. And then it's like what, what do you how, – how do you bring all that back when it starts going away? So – and I also have run into I've, – I've been involved with a, a journalist exchange program with broadcast journalists in Germany. And there are uh, – there is some uh, some people who are from uh, East Germany, a little resentment about how the stories told about how horrible their lives were and, mm-hmm. you know, and how the West had to save them. And it's like, okay, let's, uh, uh, let's back off that a little bit. You know, there were things that, that, that we did well in East Germany. So uh, that's some of the, the observations I've had as I've traveled in that area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think one thing when I was listening to Laszlo talk about, you know, that history, I'm just thinking about the fact that, I mean, and I think I've got this right, that one of the reasons the, the wall went up in the first place was because East Germany was just losing so many people who, and the people who were leaving were the young people. So, of course, that's had a long last, must have had a long lasting effect on, like you said, the kind of psyche of people living there. Um, for and that's not that doesn't disappear in one or two or maybe even three generations. So, mm-hmm. yeah. One of the things I can remember from you know that period of time was the the Olympic Games. You know the mm-hmm. East German athletes and the West German athletes, and they, you know, the East German athletes were usually pretty, you know, outrageously good. You know, at, at a lot of the different um, events, the swimming and, and various things. So it's kind of a rivalry between the two. Is there still a rivalry between the East and the West in Germany of any kind? Or does it really feel like a unified nation? I mean, I, I haven't lived there in a long time, yeah. so I'm not really a very good source on this. I will say that, um, you know, there was a very clear distinction between the experiences of people I met living in Berlin who had grown up in West Germany versus those who had grown up in the East. And it was very clear for, you know, long after that, and I think still is to this day, especially among those who were not born after the wall fell, which I imagine is a bit of a marker. I mean, if you go to Germany, it's it's a new, it's a different country now. I mean, the, the, the progress they went through is just tremendous as compared to what they looked like. I mean, a place like Leipzig where you couldn't spend a day was so terrible and glum. Now, it's a vibrant city, not to mention, you know, East Berlin. I actually stayed in an apartment once in East Berlin that had not been inhabited since 1945. Wow. And there were squatters in them. There were whole parts of East Berlin that were just literally dead, dead. So, I mean, yes, of course, there's nostalgia for many reasons, but, I mean, the Germans themselves, at the bottom of their heart, know that this, is, this, this saved them from descending to the level of um, North Korea at some point. So, mm-hmm. All right. We have about 10 minutes to go. I have several more questions I want to ask. But if you want to join us for the program, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at one 285 9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. So, I, you know, I have to ask, I have to bring it forward into, you know, our, our current situation. You know, we, we, the wall in, East, in, in Germany, in Berlin, was symbolic. And yet, you know, we have uh, a lot of debate in this country about whether there should be a wall between the United States and Mexico. I mean, can you draw any comparisons um, what, you know, how, how, is there any relevance to what was going on then and what's going on in the U.S. now? As I said, that war was meant to keep people from going away. Mm-hmm. So it was meant as a prison war to keep people in. Okay. So it's a big difference. Mm-hmm. So it was, 
Westerners, if they wanted to come to East Germany, and when they did, or they wanted to come to Eastern Europe, they could. The, the idea was that they should not be able to see the West, because if they see the West, it's going to be subverted. But the idea, the way to change communism, and this came from Germany and came from the United States, is not to to embargo it, but to exchange ideas, commodities, people, to let people travel and see. Mm-hmm. And the communists understood that this exchange, free exchange of commodities, people, ideas, is going to subvert them eventually. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a little bit of a story about how insignificant it is to keep contact with the other side. Okay. The only thing I, I'd like to add on that, I suppose if there's a parallel, it's the parallel of the people who are desperately trying to cross. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And it, and it usually, the wall, I mean, it usually, there's a fear involved. There's, a you know, either keeping people in or keeping people out. So it has that, you know, it has that kind of that symbolism wherever there is a wall. It's, it's for a certain reason to keep the people out or keep the people in. And that's, you know, that seems to be, um, walls and tunnels seem to be something that keep coming up in our, in, in the world in different ways. People trying to escape, people trying to right. be kept out, finding ways to get around or under or over these type of barriers. Mm-hmm. I think we have a, a caller who um, was a student in Germany in 1973. Yeah. Hello. Yeah, hi, go ahead. Hi, this is Mary Beth Glick from Columbus. Uh-huh. I'm so glad you're having this program. It brings back all these memories. I was a college student uh, exchange program in Germany during the fall semester of 1973. And we traveled as a group into East Germany and to Berlin and East Berlin. Those memories are still so clear to me. The, 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 the long process of coming to the border between West Germany and East Germany and everybody getting off the bus and then randomly going through different suitcases and long poles with mirrors that were pushed underneath the bus to make sure there was nothing hidden or being brought in or out. And then then being in Berlin and going into East Berlin, tall, tall cement buildings of gray. The people were gray. The streets, the sidewalks. Going in, we went into a, a large, their largest at that time, uh, department store in East Berlin, and there would be a floor of, of, of women's clothing. And the whole table, it was the same pair of socks. And the next table, it was the same pair of shirts. And the ne- there was no variety. There was no choices given to the people at all. It, it was such um, a shock to a 21-year-old <laughs> from, from Indiana having experienced our, our beautiful state and, and freedom of this United States. How did you – yeah, were you were – you, uh, I mean, did you feel safe when you went into East Germany? Yeah, it was a bus group, and there were 20 of the students uh, with uh, – this was through Valparaiso University, and there was a professor and family that lived on site in Reutlich in Germany. And then we traveled with a guide and tour, you know, everything. So we felt safe, but we knew you abide by whatever the rules are. So we were in um, Dresden, which was terribly bombed. And you may have heard of the Frauenkirche, which today has been restored as of 2005 with beauty. When I was there, it was huge piles of rubble, mm-hmm. just dust and rubble. And we stayed, I still remember, we stayed at the hotel, and there was a nice dinner and stuff. And one of the guys in our group slipped a wine glass and took it back to his room. And we were all so afraid he would be discovered, he would be taken to the jail, we would never see him again. I mean, it was palatable, mm-hmm. that, that fear of being a visitor in this strange, strange place. And they were soldiers with guns on every corner. But, but the good thing is, then 16 years later, 1989, I hear all this news of the wall coming down, and I call my good friend who lives in Alaska that we had been over there together. He said, oh my gosh, can you believe this is happening? 
you know, it had been such a part of life. Now, last summer in 2018, I was fortunate enough to go back with a friend, and we spent a week in eastern Germany. Mm-hmm. And and you're right, Germany spent billions, if not trillions, of dollars to bring that part of the country back up to the standard. But it depends. Every town is different, right? What their economy right. is, what the, right. the resources are, things like that. But the people we met hosting or, or being the keeper of a small inn that way out in the country south of Dresden, they were determined. They were young people in their 30s determined to make this work, you know, and they would drive the 40 miles or whatever it is to Dresden for a day job, but they had this little hotel, the only thing left functioning in this small town. There wasn't even a bakery. And for German town not to have a bakery is like a death right? Death, right. <laughs> right. Hey, listen, th- thanks a lot for your call. We're going to have to go on. to. We've got one more call we're going to try to get in before okay. the... Thank you. All right. Thank you. And very quickly, we have a call about church life in Germany. Yeah, go ahead. Hello. This is uh, Tim Jessen. Yeah, and hi, Tim. I was, I was uh, over in Berlin uh, t- twice after the wall fell, one little uh, with a church group. Uh, led by a seminary professor, and one of the interesting things I, I learned was that they said that the only thing that the West took from East Germany was the ability to turn right on red at a, at a traffic light. <laughs> that, that the West Germans controlled everything else. But in the church, the uh, East German church had struggled through the years of communism to support itself. The church in the West, the Protestant church, was supported by the church tax. When the two churches came together, the West said, oh, we still have to have the church tax. And the people in the East said, but our method is better, like the United States method, supporting our our own congregations as we choose. But the West wouldn't have it. So there were many good things in the East that were not reproduced when in the united germany that's what i want to all right about. tim thanks very much we're we're out of time we have hit the end of the program so i want to thank our guests today mike conway elaine monahan and laszlo borhe for uh bento boutier our producer and engineer mike pashkash i'm bob zaltzberg thanks for listening Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, Fiber Internet, Streaming TV, Home Security, and Automation in Southern Indiana. More information at Smithville.com. And from The Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports. In print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.